नमस्ते एंड वेलकम टू संगम टॉक्स टुडे वी हैव अ डिफरेंट अप्रोच टूवर्ड्स द टॉक दैट वी आर हैविंग इट्स नॉट इवन अ टॉक इज जस्ट एन इंटरव्यू दैट वी हैव विथ डॉक्टर एल्स्ट एंड ऑल ऑफ यू नो हिम एज अ वंडरफुल इंडिक स्कॉलर रिसर्चर एंड समबडी हु इज गिवन द इंडिक परस्पेक्टिव अ टोटली डिफरेंट शिफ्ट एंड हिज कॉन्ट्रीब्यूशन इज इनॉमस बट मोस्ट ऑफ अस are very curious to know the dr conrad elst beyond this persona of uh, the great academic that we know him as so let's just dig in and see the personal side of dr elst so namaste dr elst welcome namaste. to sangam talks and where you were born mm. your parents and how, how you grew up in which environment academically family yeah. and your uh, social environment Well this was Leuven Belgium at the time uh, Leuven was still a bit of a center of the uh, Catholic Church in Belgium uh in the background let's say and so my uh, my parents my environment is all catholic uh the majority back then was catholic there were also atheists religious skeptics otherwise there were no protestants no muslims or so so it was pretty homogeneous and i went to catholic school everybody there i saw back on sunday when they went to mass to the eucharist and so uh, it was uh, <laughs> nothing happened really <laughs> it was a uh, you know lower middle class environment uh, quite stable um we were not rich we had no car for example no telephone we did have a tv that made a difference um so i'm the second of five one elder sister three younger brothers my father was a civil servant uh he had studied law but not a practicing lawyer but a law scholar he also wrote in uh catholic uh, journals i mean about about religion about the state of religion my mother had been a teacher at uh well when she got married she uh or shortly after that she stopped that then she had five children so we had a stable family rather uneventful um no uh no stories of abuse or being beaten up or so <laughs> absolutely nothing of that kind it was totally alien to me same thing for the religious background i mean some people you know who have dropped out of church are going to tell terrible stories about priestly abuse or so that totally totally foreign to me were you uh, into christianity and did you believe in yes, it yes i was absolutely into christianity i was rather pious more than most of uh, the people my age i took religion quite seriously and so uh, in fact i read already early about religion like for instance um one of the developments at that time was that you didn't have to learn the catechism by heart anymore so i also didn't learn it by heart but nevertheless i took time out to learn it properly uh 
And so, so I still know what Catholicism is about. You know, already in my generation that started weakening. And when you look at the kids today, they don't know anything about it. Just even if they have gone to Catholic school, you know, that doesn't mean anything anymore. So, Dr. Els, what was your uh, defining moment growing up when you actually felt that this is not for you, Christianity? Well, uh, I was in a church choir as a child. And, and so, you see, my social life and religious life were intertwined. Uh, and so I... I didn't bargain for the social disruption that here and there it caused, though it did. It was purely a question of the truth of the religion. You see, I, age 15, you see, I decided you see, this cannot be true. And that was not anything spectacular, you know. I was a little bit contrarious, you know. I mean, I was the eldest son, typically... Uh, a bit more rebellious, uh, but that had little to do with it here, I'd say, because this was the spirit of the times, you see, the education was getting democratized, and so people who used to accept church as uh, or Catholic teachings on the authority of these learned priests and so on, that was giving way. You see, most people were too educated by then to look up to it. They looked at it critically. And so more and more people started uh, doubting all this. So me too. Uh, so at age 15, I decided not to go to church anymore, which uh, I didn't notice at the time. It is later a Hindu, Abhas Kumar Chatterjee, who, uh, you know, asked me about my story, same story I'm telling you now. And so he said, he did not say, ah, but then you should become a Hindu, you know, which is what Muslims would say in that, that situation. Uh, no, you see, he said on the contrary, don't you think this hurt your parents? And it must have. It must have. So, um, okay, well, at that age, you know, you don't think about these things. So, so then, um, as um, Chesterton said, when you stop believing in Christianity, it doesn't mean you believe in nothing. It means you believe in anything. Now, At least I started exploring different uh, different alternatives. You see, Marxism was very popular at the time, so I was influenced by that. Uh, was a bit of a camp follower of the leftist agitation that uh, took place at that time. But at the same time, I was very interested in uh, all kinds of... Uh, you know, New Age uh, stuff, uh, astrology, Kabbalah, and those things. Uh. 
So, Dr. Else, you were also an engineering student. Well, yeah, you see, I, you know, the school I went to was famous for its strong mathematics teaching. And so many, um, many who finished then went on to do the entrance exam of engineering, even if they had no plans to study engineering, just to show their muscle, you know, in mathematics. And um, so me too, I did that uh, in entrance exam. Then I started studying engineering. I didn't know very well what to do in life at that time. And then I found halfway, well, no, you see, this is very demanding. You have to forget about everything else, which I did not want to do. <laughs> too interesting, too many things. Uh, so I opted for uh, Oriental Studies. And what um, drew you to these oriental studies? I mean, science and mathematics and this are two different domains. Yeah, to, to some extent I could, you know, minimize that difference. Like in Chinese studies, we had a, a very important course of uh, history of science and technology in China, based on uh, Joseph Needham's work. And so our professor Ulrich Liebrecht was a specialist precisely of this topic. Um, so, yes, yeah, so stuff like Buddhist logic, uh, I mean, that's like that, that sort of appeal to my uh, sense for uh, yeah, the exact sciences. Uh, but yes, I mean, I had difficulty studying literature and soft sciences. In fact, when I first entered the uh, building of the arts faculty, you know, I, I, I felt a completely different atmosphere to the sciences. Uh, in science, you see, when you prove something is right, well, then it's right. You see, here you had to, you know, go by what authorities are saying, and I didn't like that at all. I thought, and excuse me for saying so, I thought, my God, this is a girls' school. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> uh, gradually I understood that um, history and philology, I, my official title is a uh, uh, master and then PhD in Oriental philolo Philology and History. Then I understood that both philology, studying the meaning of words and history, are really very fundamental sciences. I mean, that's where you learn critical thinking. You see, religious fundamentalist sects like the creationists in the United States, they boast of having a number of exact scientists among their uh, believers. And so people can compartmentalize their mind. You see, they can be very exact on the job, and then they come home, and then they become religious believers. And you find that much less among people who learn to think critically. And so that's what philology and history are about. So, you know, if you study, let's say, the Bible, and develop doubts about Jesus, and see the contradictions in the Bible and so on, well, that's one way of starting to doubt, of starting to think critically. Whereas if you learn about differential equations, 
that's very interesting, but that's not what is going to set you to think about what you've learned in religion classes. So yeah, I mean, ultimately I'm quite happy that I did what I did. <laughs> so now tell us the India story, Dr. Elst. How well, did you come here? Yes. Well, I am sorry to say, I'm generally sorry to say, but especially for a Hindu audience, because I know that many are not going to like this, but I am divorced. And so uh, let's say that I discovered India to a large extent uh, thanks to my wife. Um, so, I mean, I had earlier already noticed India. Uh, it started at age five or six when I watched the TV serial um, where some detective has to get the testimony of some lady. So he goes to her house, knocks on the door, no answer. Then he notices that the door is open. And so he goes inside and she's there. She's standing on her head in Shirshasana. So that was, <laughs> and that I didn't know at the time, but that was in fact the reenactment of a famous photograph, namely of our own queen widow, Elizabeth, who you see later in life became a devoted pupil of BKS Iyengar yoga teacher and so uh, so she's there at age 80 something standing on her head so, <laughs> so that drew yes. you towards yoga you think hmm? to this whole mystery i don't think the the word yoga was there but at any rate from then on i you know absorbed any information about it i could get yes anyway so later on i first enrolled in chinese studies uh, which is very good because, you see, many people have a, a one-track interest in one particular uh, part of the world, and so that's not my case, apart from my own background. And so, fortunate for, fortunately for me, I also know my own civilization. Many of the kids who grown up nowadays, they know nothing, they know what is you know, on, on the video, but otherwise, unfortunately. Well, anyway, um, so that I know, and then I studied rather thoroughly Chinese civilization. But then, you see, I, I thought, I, I really noticed, well, clearly what India has to offer somehow is more fundamental. Maybe it'll, it won't get me very far in life. At that time, India was absolute backwater and so when people heard i was studying india they told me what what are you doing you said what what can you do with that um because you see india that was a, a backward country where uh, mother Teresa had to go to you know to to pick the lepers up from the gutter where these ugly hindus had left them to rot um that was India, so already at that time it was uh, uh, around, well, yeah, it was the 80s. No, it was not, not, yet, not yet getting better in India. But soon after, in the 90s, after Narasimha Rao, finally a certain liberalization released the energies of the Indian people and all the success that they had had in, in, in England, in America, 
now suddenly started getting reproduced in India on a far larger scale. So now India is doing quite well, but at the time, uh, not at all. And yet, and yet, you see, when I heard about Indian philosophy, I thought, well, this is important. And when was this, Dr. Ayers? When did you set foot first in India? Uh, well, I set foot in India in 1988. So I, I thought never to come to India. Just before that, I'd had a serious chronic disease. And because of that, I thought, well, India with all this malaria and so on, why go there at all? This is not necessary. You see people who study the philosophy of, let's say, Immanuel Kant, who came from Königsberg, they don't go there. They have his books, that's enough. And, you know, I mean, I studied the Greek philosophers. I've never been to Greece. I don't care about going to Greece. So I thought, you know, what, what do I need India for? Getting sick? No. <laughs> then suddenly, suddenly it is my wife that got a, a scholarship to go there. So then I rearranged my plans. I also applied for a scholarship. And um, so I spent some time here in Varanasi, BHU. And um, that's where I discovered, well, yeah, this Hindu philosophy, it's all nice, but I'll return to it later in life. Because I discovered something here of far greater urgency, namely the whole communal situation. This was not at all what I vaguely knew about it. And so, uh, so I said, okay, let's, let's set the record straight. And so then I started doing this. And so and what so, was your drive to uh, get into this whole communal? Ah, well, I don't know. You see, I, I saw a hole in the market, as they say. And, you know, I saw something that nobody was doing. So I thought, well, I can make myself useful here. You know, it's just that you want to make your mark. You want to do something out of the ordinary. Well, this was it. I had landed in the middle of it, so it's... Just, Fortuitously, I met Sitaram Goel, who gave me a completely different perspective. And this communal uh, angle you're talking about is uh, with regards to the Babri uh, issue? And yes, of course. Um, so uh, at that time, of course, that was like front page news. But interestingly, I mean, I, I saw that this was only the most spectacular phase of uh, a far deeper issue. And so that's, I thought that that is something worthy of, uh, on, uh, let's say, an educated intellect to devote his life to. And so then you met Sitaram Goyalji? Yes. And, uh, and that's absolutely decisive. I can't emphasize it enough. Um, because, you see, I had already done a little, you know, discovery about the Hindu movement that everybody talks about, namely the RSS. And I thought, well, I was a bit disappointed. It was the same nationalism that you see in, in European nationalisms. And so, especially coming from Belgium, since you want to know my background, you see, Belgium has no national feeling. It's an artificial state. Uh, it was usually laughed at. 
Um, Belgian nationalists were very funny characters, the few that existed. And then you, you had a, a, a separatist movement in my part of the country. They too, you see, there's, uh, again, you see from family background and so on, they were totally strange to me. And they were in a different manner also funny. And so I, I didn't take the whole nationalist thing serious. Um, and so I found it quite bombastic. And so in India, I saw the same thing. Um, although I did see that they had a point. You see, yes, of course, there had been the destruction of all these Hindu temples and all that. Uh, but so to see it in a proper perspective, now that's where Sitaram Goel made all the difference. And so, Dr. Els, you have an immense contribution to the whole Babri Masjid case that went on. Yes. Could you talk about that a bit? Well, I don't know if my contribution was all that immense, but um, you see, I wrote a little book about it. Um, and that was not a good book. That was the least of my books. <laughs> uh, and which one was No, it? no, this is Ramzan Mubahumi versus Babri Masjid, a case study in Hindu-Muslim conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, that's rather journalistic. Um, could have been far more thorough. But uh, the merit of it is that it broke the impression that existed in India that... It was only the Hindu nationalists making a fuss of this, whereas the entire world, including the enlightened West, you see that sees through them and thinks they're ridiculous and so on. So here was a Westerner who was arguing that essentially uh, the Hindu side is, is right. So that made a difference. That's why L.K. Advani of the BJP at the time noticed it. And um, yeah, so so that book became front page news, <laughs> to my great surprise. Yes. And so the next question I would like to ask Dr. Elst is that uh, what is this drive that you have to support this whole quote-unquote Hindu cause that they say, being a Westerner? What is this since there's a lot of brickbats that come from Hindus themselves yes. on Twitter, on social media that we see? With all kinds of accusations, like you're a missionary agent yes. and you're Malaycha and you know all these kind of things and you have to keep explaining to them. So uh, I would like to know that what is this drive that keeps you without any accolades, mm. with this brickbats, what keeps you going? Yeah, it was, a, it was a very bad career move, that is for sure. Uh, if I'd wanted to become somewhat uh, well-to-do, then maybe I should have opted for the other side, you know, uh, but, and then among Hindus also, yes, it's true, I'm not very much appreciated, uh, because I have some views on intra-Hindu matters that don't please everyone, like, for instance, uh, I displease the traditionalists by saying, no, the Vedas are not the essence of Hinduism, they came later, they are specific for one area, one tribe that started the Vedas. Then, of course, it became more prestigious and so on across India. But still, it's not really the essence of Hinduism. 
and so many people don't like that. There are still uh, quite a few casteist Hindus who don't like my idea that caste is just a historical development. It wasn't always there. And if it disappears, well, okay, Hinduism will still exist. Um, and so on. So yeah, there are Hindus who don't like, who don't like me, um, who say, Mlet uh, detected, opinion rejected. Yes. So what is well, it? Why, okay, why do I nevertheless soldier on? Well, uh, I guess I have a normal uh, desire to do something noticeable, uh, not to just parrot the, the received wisdom. Then, of course, Hindus may say, and some of them have said, that clearly... In a past life, I was a Hindu, and maybe my reincarnation elsewhere even has a reason, uh, namely that in India I saw the Hindu movement completely going wrong, not achieving anything, you know, getting uh, stuck in its own contradictions, in its own confusion, and so, therefore, I had to, you know, learn a few things in, in Europe that would later uh, come in handy for uh, Hindu uh, assertion. Yeah. And then, so Dr. Els, this is um, <clears throat> apart from the out-of-India theory and completely demolishing the Aryan invasion theory with you and Srikanta Gajiriji. Yeah. I think that cannot be, uh, you cannot be thanked enough for that. We'll always remain indebted to you. I know a lot of people who say that you should be given a, at least a Padma Shri for that and the Bharat Ratna because there are many people who were alive and got the Bharat Ratna. So, I mean, at least on at par with Sita Ram Goyal is yeah. what people actually say and they actually, there are a lot of, most of them are the ones who are thankful to you. Yeah. I mean, I personally am one of them. I can't ever thank you enough for what you have done for this whole cause. The one question that uh, kind of is in everybody's mind is what faith or religion or belief does Dr. Conrad else follow? Well, um, when you fill out the form to get a visa, you have to state your religion. And there I simply state, well, first, you see, they, they ask you for religion, and one of the options is none. But then you have to specify in handwriting. And so, um, so I write none, and then I specify secular humanist. Secular is a very abused word. Yes, I know, but there's nothing wrong with it in the West. It's only in India that it's gained a totally different meaning. And so in India, I wouldn't want to be called a secularist. <laughs> what do you identify yourself with in India? Uh, Pre-Vedic. Pre-Vedic? Yes. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> well, think of the first Rishi. You see, he was just being creative. This was, I think, Bharatvaj, the court priest of King Bharata, after whom India is named Bharat. 
So um, he was just a poet. There were poets before him that haven't been recorded. So he decided to do better and you know learn this stuff by heart and uh, have it learned by heart by others. So uh, he was just creative. He he had a good idea and he put it into words and better words and he worked on it so that it was really pleasing to the ear. And well, so he was being creative. I remember you telling me this that you are an itsist. This is a, a Dutch expression, itsist. Uh, Eats means something. And so it's very common if you ask ex-Christians, yeah, but, but, but what do you believe in? And they say, yeah, well, I'm no longer a Christian. But yeah, there is something. I mean, I wouldn't call it God, but yeah, there's something. <laughs> so the somethingists, well, I wouldn't even call myself a somethingist, really, because I'm not even sure that there is something. There may also be nothing. Uh, we do not need to believe. I mean, as some skeptics say, you know, Christians always harangue them, yeah, but you also believe in something. Well, yes, I believe in evidence. That I believe in. <laughs> but not necessarily a supreme being or so. You see, in 2005, the Buddhist clergy in Cambodia intervened with the government because they had heard of plans to write in the social science textbooks for the pupils that religion is the service of God or anything else, at any rate, with the word God in it. So they said, this is not true. We Buddhists, we don't believe in God. And people may believe anything, but Buddhism is not about beliefs. Buddhism is a certain practice. And so I can, yeah, I can totally agree with that. So I think uh, that's all we have uh, about Dr. Elst and uh, as much as we could uh, gather in this short span of time. But I think Dr. Elst, we've done a fairly good job. And uh, so we'll, we'll try to follow up with more intellectuals uh, and more such uh, great scholars who you want to know from the other side, their personal side, which we all are very interested. So thank you very much for joining and thank you Dr. Elst for joining in and sharing these thoughts with us. Thank you.